If you have your Bibles, open them with me to the book of John, chapter number 7, the book of John, chapter 7. We're going to look at this morning verses 37 through 39. The BBC tells us that 1.1 billion people lack access to safe drinking water. It's probably remarkable to come up and to just see that number for myself, just as much as it is remarkable to read anything from the BBC for whatever reason. They go on to tell us 2.7 billion people find water a difficult thing to get for part of the year. Substantial, whether it's a month or longer than that. Uh, Expert tells us, scientists and, and those in that field tell us, you can live about three days without water. Three days. Maybe a month or two months without food, but water is a basic necessity. I recall hearing a testimony of a missionary with uh, Campus Crusade, now called Crew, who uh, is working with church planners over in Muslim countries, hard-to-reach areas, unreached people groups. And there was a church planner in a particular area that was trying to get in this completely Muslim village, and there was just no way in. Well crew come along with the church planner and decided that these people who were constantly, repetitively sick over the water that they drank, which was diseased and and, um, nasty, they would drill them a well and they would provide for them a continual sustainable supply of water. Uh, The videos we saw with people with these filthy gas cans carrying around that they would fill up with water to drink from. The remarkable outcome of this work in that Muslim village is the leaders of that community said to him, we don't know why the rest of the Muslim people wouldn't do this for us. And yet here you, a Christian, did this and they gave him a plot of land to build a church. That's pretty good news, isn't it? Drill a well and win them to Christ. Now, I know we take it for granted here in the Adirondacks because everything is wet for most of the year. So when Jesus says, come, you are thirsty and drink, you're thinking, let me go to the desert. You know, I'd rather be out in the desert for a while. It is the basic need which Jesus enlarges. As he is speaking to a people in his day and, and to us as well, the significance of who he is and why he came to give water, to give satisfaction, to give a drink to those who are in need. Well, let me uh, let me just read the verse 37 through 39. And what I want to do is set in context this morning, uh, this Feast of Booths, this Feast of Tabernacles or Sukkot, uh, depending on uh, what your translation says or, or how you pronounce that. But I want to enlarge on that a little bit, probably more than normal, and then we'll we'll try to get a grasp of what Jesus is saying. Verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink, and whoever believes in me, as the Scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were 
to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, um, uh, the beginning of verse number 37 speaks of that last day of the feast. We talked about that briefly, and I'll bring that to your remembrance. This is the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. Uh, scripture tells us back in Leviticus 23 that this would be one of the celebrations, one of the ceremonies that the Israelites would carry on or perpetuate. It was the last of the feasts in the Jewish calendar and was considered a harvest feast because it came September, end of September, and in October at the harvest of grapes and olives. The duration of this, the Bible tells us, would be a seven-day Now, they knew how to celebrate in the Bible, don't they, moms? I mean, you get one day, really, after all that you've done. And, and, well, anyway, seven-day feast per Leviticus 23-36, if you want to look that up. Not only was it an extended time of celebration, it was a... Uh, what was referred to as a pilgrim feast or pilgrimage. They would take one of the three feasts and they all the men would be required to go up to Jerusalem to celebrate and, and there they would be for seven days celebrating this kind of festive uh, feast that they were required to. Josephus tells us that it was one of the favorites of the nation of Israel. It was the most uh, well-attended, well-liked among the people in his day. Now, during the feast, the reason they call it the Feast of Booths, the children of Israel would erect these kind of makeshift tents. So some of y'all would like that. That's kind of what you're into. You like tents. and So they would set up these canvas walls that would have um, the capacity to allow light to come through these. Later on, the second century, they would have a whole list of do's and don'ts, what would be considered a legitimate booth. And that's just the way people are when we get together. We, we like to expand upon rules and regulations. But nevertheless, they would, they would have all these, these tents all throughout Jerusalem that would be set up that people would eat in and they would dwell in and that they would sleep in these booths made of palm branches and other things like that. They would allow the sun or the sky to be opened or where they could see the stars. And it's, it's like really like Adirondack feeling. Some of you are like, this is awesome. Sign me up for the next celebration. Well, these temporary shelters or structures was to symbolize the wilderness wandering and how God sustained the children of Israel for 40 years in the wilderness from their deliverance from Egypt on into Canaan land. It was a joyful reminder of God's rich provisions of 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 food and substance and those things like that. During the feast, men would also carry, uh, they would have a strange combination of branches, myrtle, a palm, a willow named a lulav, and a citrus fruit that looked like a, a really large lemon. They would hold them in their hands. One Jewish person said you had to hold it one way with the stem down and then you turn it with the stem up. There's a whole system of how you do this sort of thing. And you celebrate, and they would shake these things in their hands as they praise God and glorify God. So there's some weird things going on here, uh, as you can see in this feast. They still do a lot of this stuff as well. Uh, it's fun to try to look up how do you pronounce uh, how do you pronounce some of this stuff, right? Associated with this would be a a, a kind of water ritual. 
So the feast itself become uh, uh, very familiar or, or very closely associated with water. There are many reasons for that in the Old Testament. The prophets, as it speaks about the rivers flowing out of the temple, and there's many places you can find in the Old Testament with that, that idea of life coming out. But one of, the, one of the unique things that would take place is the priest would take a golden pitcher, the high priest, and he would walk out of the water gate one day a week for six days. And he would take that golden pitcher and a, and a procession of people as they were singing the psalms and, uh, and those things like that. And he would go to the pool of Siloam. Then he would get a pitcher full of water. He would take it back and he would walk around the altar. And some historians tell us that they offered more sacrifices during this feast than any other celebration. And there on that altar, there would be a silver bowl and that priest would hold that pitcher above his head and, and he would begin to pour out that water in, from that golden pitcher into a silver bowl and he would shout out this kind of prayer, please, Lord, save us, hear our prayers, because then he would take that water and wash the altar with it. Someone said it was a particular height of joy or blessing for a, a Jewish man to see the water pouring from the pitcher. You can imagine thousands of people gathered together. That you couldn't hardly see what was going on, but if you was close enough to see the water pouring out and hear the priest's prayer, you were considered very blessed indeed. It is on this great day, the seventh day of the feast, which is considered the climax of all the celebrations. There'd be something else going on the eighth day, but the seventh day, the priest would go through the processions, the crowd would follow him, they'd be singing the psalms, and, and he would not just walk around that altar once, but he would walk around that thing seven times. Mind you of what? Seven, two, two people are still with me. I haven't lost them yet. Thanks. Jericho, that's right, for those of you who are unsure exactly about your Old Testament. That's Jericho. Uh, you find that in the book of Joshua. Anyway, he'd walk around that seven times and he would take that pitcher and hold it above his head and he would pour out that water in that silver bowl and he would say that prayer, please, Lord, save us, hear our prayers. He was singing and celebration and all of that going on, singing Psalms 113 through 118. All the focus was on God and his faithfulness and his provision. All the focus reminded of his, not just his provision, his faithfulness in delivering out of Egypt, but his provision and faithfulness this past year. It's the last harvest festival. And so you have this kind of celebration rooted in Israel's history and, and the booths and all the other things that are going on, obedient to God's law. But it was a reminder of his faithfulness throughout the year, his provision throughout the year. But he's also kind of looking for this kind of future joy and deliverance in the coming of the Messiah. There's a whole lot of stuff going on here. It's at this moment that we pick up in verse number 37. It's on this last day. Jesus has already been preaching and teaching in the temple. Multitudes have been amazed by him. He's already had some back and forth with some of the people, the Pharisees earlier. I'm going to a place that you cannot come. They sent officers to arrest him, verse 32 through 36. And he says, I'm going to a place and you'll seek me and cannot find me. He's speaking about his, his ascension. Notice 
Verse number 37, on that last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. It's a word that he, that he loudly proclaims on the last day of the feast at a moment when all the focus is upon God and his provision and his faithfulness and all the people is rejoicing. Jesus says, hey, look at me. That's audacious claim, isn't it? As some of us, we've read it enough. We're like, yeah, that's naturally that's what he would do. But if you were there, you would think this guy has lost his mind. How in the world, what kind of, auda- what kind of, what kind of boldness would, would someone take all the focus and praise which is meant to go to God and meant to speak of his provision and, and his goodness and all that and say, come to me, look at me on a day like this? Well, it would have been crazy and audacious if, he was anyone other than who he is. It's kind of interesting that as you look at the Zechariah's testimony, millennial kingdom to being on your end times belief, millennial kingdom, uh, Zechariah 14. It is this feast that continues on that the nations will come and celebrate the provision of God. And is at this feast... With a loud voice, Jesus says, If anyone thirst, in verse number 37, let him come to me and drink. Is it this feast that he takes the attention and the focus, uses all that's going on around him, and he, and he puts it on himself? If you're thirsty, come to me. I want to share just a few things out of this. I think maybe helpful as we navigate through this uh, this morning. First, what is he saying by this? And, and I... I think it's best understood this way, that Jesus is saying, the very thing you're praying for, that please, Lord, save us, hear our prayers, that very thing that you're looking for and anticipating is found in me. The fulfillment of the moment, the the climax of this moment, and all that you're doing is meant to prepare you for me, the Messiah, the Messianic age, the deliverance, all of that stuff is found in me. Come to me is what he's saying. It reminds us, and so thankful for the, the, the season that we live in with the, the time with the finished word of God and the, the way that we can look at it and, and understand much of the Old Testament. But the way it's understood by us is through the lens of Christ. The Hebrew writer reminds us that these sacrifices offered up and these celebrations, all of these ceremonies were nothing but shadows. They were, they were a picture of, of a substance of a person that was to come. I was here this morning and no one was here. And as I was walking around in here praying and I was Noticing the light coming through the window, rejoicing in that. Oftentimes you have a season where you can't see out them because of snow. Isn't that amazing to think of that? (laughs) It happens. (laughs) And as I was looking, I noticed that, that you couldn't see any of the walkways because of the shadows of the chairs. But you know, when I walked out here and walked back up to my office because I hadn't had my coffee yet, I didn't have to step around the shadows. It's the chairs. That's the substance. That was the real thing. And the Hebrew writer says the real thing in all of the Old Testament practices, in all of the sacrifices, in all of the celebration, in all of the provision is Christ himself. 
It's found in, it's not just found in him, it is him. All of the blood and bulls and goats were, were, were spilt, were, were shed, were offered up, were burnt, not to satisfy anything, but to, but to point to that one satisfaction that would rent the, the veil in the temple when Christ was offered up on the cross. We already saw this in John chapter number 6 when the, the people were saying to him, Jesus, give us manna from heaven. We'll believe you. We'll think you're the Messiah. Moses gave us manna. You give us fish and, and little biscuits. Give us some manna. How about that? And what does Jesus do? He says, I am that bread which came down from heaven. I am the provision of God. I am the deepest substance substance that you need. I am that which satisfies your longing. He's saying here in this feast, at this pivotal moment, the very same thing to these people when he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come and drink. In fact, part of the celebration was that they not only dwelt in the presence of God, seeing his glory in the cloud and in a fire, and later on as a tabernacle in the midst of the people of Israel, but he sustained them with manna and with water from a rock that Moses struck with his rod. But you and I know as we come to the New Testament, that was a picture of Christ himself who would be struck and out of him he would give life through his suffering. Uh, in one sense, he's saying to these people in this bold declaration that I am the fulfillment of all these things. But secondly, not only do you see this fulfillment of the Old Testament symbolism, there's much more could be said about that, but you see it's the satisfaction of your thirst. Notice again, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now, again, we may not appreciate this as much as someone living in the Mojave Desert or someone living in the Middle East. But you and I both know water is necessary for survival and it is a reminder that God is saying through Christ to his people and to us that the longing, that thirst which we have, that which is necessary for our survival is meant to be found in him. Not just your physical upkeep and well-being, One day this body is going to decay. Amen? We're right on our way with that. So it's farther along. Never mind. But the substance of our spiritual life, our spiritual survival is found in God. Now this is the kind of language which we read in Isaiah 55 when God gives this great invitation. I couldn't help but think about that as John was reading for us this morning. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Isn't that a beautiful invitation from God? Come to those who are thirsty. God is calling us to come to him. And in like fashion, Jesus is is claiming that same right as he says, come to me to everyone who is thirst. Actually, that is the only precondition is one must be thirsty. One must be thirsty. And what is he talking about thirst being the only condition that needs to be met? 
And I would say it's Jesus saying those who are searching to satisfy their deepest longing. What is it that we thirst for? Well, the list is beyond capturing fully, but I think I can give you a little idea of what I've thought of. What is it that we most desperately want? Now, when I say we, you may think of we as the church, but I mean we as people, as a human being, as a nation, as a society, part of the human race. What is it that we want? What is it that transcends, I think, even even pagan religions and secularism and all the other aspects of life that we find ourselves trying to satisfy this thirst? And isn't part of it we want to be blessed? We want good and favor. I don't know anybody who willingly says, sign me up for the damnation part. Is there any cursing I can get along the way? Our, our longing is for good. Our longing, now good may be skewed in one way, but, but deep down we, we want to be blessed. We want to belong or have true lasting fellowship. We want affirmation and validation that we're important or significant or that what we give ourselves to really matters, that we have found purpose and meaning in life. Ecclesiastes is all about that pursuit, isn't it, of purpose and meaning. We want comfort. We go about it the wrong way, but we still want it significance in our work. We want something that lasts. I think it was John Piper who said, man is not content. He is afflicted with chronic restlessness. Everything we set our hand to gets old. We fight without success against the epidemic of boredom. I think he's right. Writer of Ecclesiastes remind us that God has put eternity in our heart, salvation, that clear conscience, that deep longing for satisfaction, that, well, to put it one way, that itch we can't scratch. Uh, that, that thing which we may not even be able to put a name to. Jesus is speaking in the depths of the crevice of our being, and he says, that, That's that longing, that's that thirst which I have come to satisfy if you're thirsty. Lewis has famously put it that if he finds in himself a desire which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. And what we come from Isaiah's invitation from God in chapter number 55 and Jesus is here in John chapter number 7, that satisfaction, the joy, the peace, the belonging, the, the hope, the, the meaning in life, all of that is found not in a place, heaven necessarily, but in a person, in God himself, in our proximity to him. Heaven will be heaven because God is there. It reminds us of the audaciousness of the, of the rebuke found in the book of Jeremiah, doesn't it? Jeremiah 2, verses 12 through 13. Almost as if God is calling us to come and see this people of mine. And we do that, don't? Look at this kid. Something, I mean, he's lost his mind. Watch him do that. We do that kind of 
don't we? God is kind of doing something like that as he invites us to look at the, the insanity of what has happened among his own people as they chase after idolatry. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Instead of coming to God and finding life in Him, help and substance, they go to their trees and their rocks and their statues and all the other things. They dig for themselves wells and other places and uh, that cannot hold water. They turn to God and they turn to poison. They turn to dust. You know, we turn to religion, don't we? In all of its different shapes and sizes. We have tried to satisfy our hearts and our souls and our longings through power, through family. If I could just be this kind of person or have this kind of family, like the little pictures on the back of your car, you know. I mean, it's kind of odd thing that you would do, but I get it. It's even odder to put all your pets on there too. I don't know what that's all about. So you got four cats and a dog. We turn to pleasure, hedonism, apathy, sports. We turn to nature itself, a thousand other things, sex and drugs and, and our passion and everything that we pursue after to try to fill us, give us some kind of lasting satisfaction And it never, never fills us. It is the same of the rocks and the idols and and the trees and the statues in the day of Israel. When they wanted rain, they would do their little dance and go to their idols. When they wanted fertility, they would do their little thing and go to their idols when they kept continually found themselves in difficult situations instead of going to God and finding life and help from Him instead of belonging in Him. They they go to everything else that they have erected for themselves claiming to be wise. The Bible says they become fools and we are living in a foolish society. It's insanity, isn't it? Mankind keeps doing the same thing, hoping for a different result. And to a people like that, God is saying, if you're thirsty, if you're, if you're longing, if it's not satisfied because I am meant to satisfy, come to me and drink. Come to me, the joy and peace and happiness, power and hope, and a thousand other things are found in God. I love that song, Come Ye Sinner, Poor and Needy. And he goes on, part of that song, he says, And in his hand are 10,000 charms. If we would have them, we must be near them, near him. They're not these odd gifts that God just drops along the way and we can have without him. In fact, C.S. Lewis said in one point that if we would get wet, if we would want to be wet, then you need to be near water. And if you want these blessings from God, you need to be near Him. This is what Jesus is calling us to. I remind you of what the psalm said in Psalms 107.9. 
For he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. You believe that? Have you found satisfaction in Christ? Have you found him all the more than he's to meet our basic needs? Find our contentment in him? Do you continue to find refreshment and satisfaction in Christ? I uh, come across this. Actually, I was looking for a hymn to go along with this because how do you end this poem without a hymn, right? <laughs> and I, I, I'm not saying it's providence or maybe, well, I will say it's providence. I don't know if it's divine providence or just whatever you want to call it, but I opened it right up to this song, so I'll share it with you one line, and it says this. Feeding on the husk around me till my strength was almost gone. Long my soul soul for something better, only still to hunger on. Hallelujah, I found him whom my soul so long has craved. Jesus, Jesus satisfies my longings through his blood. I now am saved. That's what he's saying to these people. If you're thirsty, come to me to be satisfied. Now let me close with the promise and the provision of this blessing that he shares with us. Notice he says again, verse number 37, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures, it says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Necessary to having our, our heart satisfied is that we thirst. And here he, he explained what he means to come to him and drink, doesn't he? Verse number 38, as he, as he elaborates what he's been elaborating all through the Gospel of John, whoever believes in me. And so what is Jesus really telling this people? Well, your satisfaction is found in me. Whoever believes in me, that is the same as coming to me to drink. Whoever believes in me. Whoever believes my word. He's been teaching half the week or all week here in the temple. And, and we found people who was amazed that he was so smart. How did you get so smart, Jesus? You never went to school. We know his mom and dad. I mean, they're pretty nice people, but they ain't that bright. To, to, you know, how did you get there? Some of your children probably think that way, right? They debated his teaching. They argued against him. They denied him. They criticized him. They doubted him. They did everything but believe his words. And he says, whoever believes them will be satisfied. Whoever believes his word. That if you come to him by faith, then you will be received. That in him, God has made a propitiation, an offering for our sin. In him, life is found. In him, satisfaction is given when you believe his words we do a lot with the bible we have a ton of them in our house don't we i say we because we how many you got to put around every time you clean the house or you're just going through bible adjustments aren't you and the danger isn't the possession of a bible it's the danger when we open it the question isn't, do you think the Bible is the Word of God, but, but is it the Word of God when you open it? But not just believe his words that he is a man sent from God. He tells his followers later on that if you believe in him, in me, verse number 38, think about these words in John fourteen one. Let me read them to you. 
Let not your hearts be troubled. Don't you like that? How many of you are troubled this morning? Raise your hand. <laughs> A couple of honest people in here. Jesus says, don't be troubled. Well, that's easy to say, isn't it? He says, as you believed in God, believe also in me. And it isn't just his words, but our faith, the substance of our faith, our hope, our eternity, all rest upon Jesus himself. Our victor, our substitution. And it is a remarkable offer of salvation, isn't it? Forgiveness of sin, a clear conscience, belonging, acceptance, hope, eternal life, no more condemnation. All of that for what? And to whom? To those who believe. You know, there's a story, and I'll try to be quick with it, in Second Kings 5 of a general named Naaman. How many of you are familiar with Naaman? One of my favorite stories in the Old Testament. You should look it up and read it when you get home. Naaman. I think we'll see him in heaven. You can read it and let me know what you think. And he goes to see this prophet. He's a man with leprosy. And he goes to see the prophet and tries to get healed. The the king of Syria sends him with this ridiculous amount of gold and camels and and clothes and stuff. I mean, you used to give clothes in those days. That's how you rewarded people. Here's your new shirt. Don't do that so much anymore. Might be a nice idea to pick back up, but nevertheless. So he goes to see this prophet. And it's an amazing story because the prophet does not even come out to talk to the guy. I mean, talk about disrespect. He's a general. In fact, the prophet sends his servant out, and he sends him out and tells him, go dip in Jordan seven times. That's it. He's done. Shut the door. Come back. Hang up the phone. You know, push send on the text, whatever. And so the man leaves. The general is insulted. This is not what he had planned for. He goes away from that meeting and from that servant and with those instructions angrily, uh, he's, he's furiated. I thought he would come out and slap the ground and yell in the heavens and do some kind of rain dance and all sorts of stuff, maybe kill a bird or something. I thought he would do some cool stuff. At least come out and talk to me. I, I thought this would be more of a show, more of an epic thing than what I've been told. He has a very wise servant who loved him, this general did. And the servant tells him, he says, well, Lord, if he asked you to do something crazy and off the wall, if he asked you to fill out a a, a checklist, get an eye of a spider or or something, I'm I'm adding to the story, you see. Uh, But if he asked you to do this, wouldn't you have done it? And, And implied in that is absolutely. You can imagine digging a needle in the eye of a spider. He would would love to do something like that. Let me do something amazing so I know it works. And the servant says, why wouldn't you not just go dip seven times at the man's word? And isn't that really what Jesus is saying? If there was a list you could do, wouldn't you strive and spend your life doing it? If there's an amount of money that you can give, wouldn't you... Wouldn't you save and cheat and rob and steal and do whatever it took to, to get that amount? If it, was a, if it was an achievement to climb some kind of peak, wouldn't you go through the effort needed to go through that effort to satisfy? And in fact, that's exactly what we've been doing. Trying to find all of these ways to satisfy and we go back to name and serve and this. Why don't you just believe? 
why don't you just come to him? You've went your own way. You've tried your own means. You've, you've expended yourself over and over. Why is doing the simplest thing always the hardest? Because it takes a supernatural work not to be thirsty, but to be thirsty for God. It takes a supernatural work to turn from your own ways and come to him and be saved and satisfied. It takes us seeing the reality that we are not able to meet our own needs. And we don't like that kind of reality very often, do we, as a people? And if you're here this morning and you have been trying to satisfy that, that longing in your heart in every way that you've been trying to pursue it, it can only be filled in Christ and in coming to him. It will take... It will cost something coming by with no money. It will cost you turning from yourself and your achievements and your pleasures and turning to Christ. What an amazing promise that whoever believes in me, he says in verse number 38, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That, that settledness, that peace in the depths of our heart and soul, that's the very thing that we long for, isn't it? That's the very thing God gives us in the Holy Spirit to those who believe. But there's something else here implied very quickly, and I'll say this, that it's not just that satisfaction we enjoy. Now notice, you see, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. We come with an empty cup, and he gives us a bucket full. Or you come with your five-gallon bucket, and he's, 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 he's opening up a fire hydrant. It's this idea that we come for just a little satisfaction or, or just to be satisfied. And, and he says, don't you understand? Out of your heart will be flowing rivers of living water. I mean, this is continual satisfaction in life that's found from God. That's what we want. We don't want to take a pill and, and then have to take another one and another one and another one and another one and another one. And he's not saying that. He says, in us, that's the work of salvation. Spirit indwelling us. But there's something of this is implied here, I think, and that is that that grace which works so powerfully in you will not only be in you supplying and providing, but it will flow out and it will reach the people around you. You will not only be blessed, but you'll spill over and be a blessing to others. And some of you know people like that, don't you? You're around them five, ten minutes, and, and they're already, all, that, all, all that overflow, you're, you're going to have to change socks after you get done talking to them. It's like playing golf down at Lake Pleasant the first part of the year. I mean, it's just wet. <laughs> Why is this not experienced more? Because church, it, I think the problem is this. We often turn back to drinking from the wells of the world instead of from the deep, rich refreshment from Jesus Christ and in his word. I pray that would be our heart's desire to be satisfied in Him and through that satisfaction let it spill out into the lives of others around us in this community. Father, we thank You for this day that You've given to us. Thank You for Your many, many blessings. Lord, even as we anticipate communion tonight and come prepared to sing praises to You and offer up thanks for how You've been working this past month, we we pray that you would even make our hearts ready, joyfully anticipating coming tonight. And Lord, I pray for 
Uh, pray for each one here this morning that as you have been working in their heart through the Spirit, as we've been looking at your Word, that you would you would perfect that work. Especially for those here who who may be wayward, kind of in and out and unsure and unsettled in where they are. Lord, I pray that you would just do a, a supernatural work in their heart, that they would just come casting themselves before Christ and his mercy and knowing that as we have just read, that if we come thirsty to you with an empty cup, you fill us all the way up. I pray that for those not only who are wayward, Lord, I pray for that one here or maybe two here that, that don't know you as their Savior. Lord, that they would find even today your goodness and your mercy and forgiveness of sin and newness of life as you bring them into the family of God. Lord, I pray, save now. Lord, for each of us, let us be continually fixed upon Christ, finding our satisfaction and desires met in him in Jesus' name. Amen.